chapter 3. We're going to be in John 3, verse 22 is where we're going to start today. Thanks to Rob for reading that out loud. It sounds like Rob was like doing a stage check, and I was out in the lobby, and he was like, hello. I'm like, Lord, is that, is that you? Uh, yeah, Rob's got that voice, so thank you, Rob, for doing that. You know, this last year, I've been listening to a podcast about um, the rise and fall of a large church in the Pacific Northwest, in the Seattle area. Um, the podcast covered this kind of 15-year span of a movement that really reached the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Portland, with the gospel. Um, but with the gospel, as they noted in this, comes uh, kind of a major personality that shaped the church. And really the church, um, whether it rose on the gospel, it fell on this large personality and with the gospel, this, this, the personality that shaped the culture of the church and, and kind of the pride and spiritual abuse and excuse-making that eventually led to the dissolving of this huge, this huge organization, this huge church. And leaving kind of a particular black eye on Christianity in the Pacific Northwest, which has never really been a super fertile ground for the gospel. And as I've been listening to this, I don't know, some of you guys are like, podcast, what's a podcast? Okay, talk to your kids or your grandkids. I love podcasts. I've got a whole slew of them. This one has been particularly, uh, I don't want to say, it's been an emotional experience listening to this podcast. Um, hearing stories and kind of the, the work of untangling the truth of whenever God's at work, there's also the work of human flesh. And whenever God is at work, there's always, there, there's always, Whenever God's at work, you can always count on the spirit being present, but also the flesh and the devil being present. And this idea of untangling this, and, and one of the taglines of, um, of, uh, uh, of the podcast was the mystery of God working in broken places. And you have this, it's been emotional also because I, I have a, a friend and his family, they went up to that church. They were called to go up to that church to train worship leaders and to be part of the record label and to do, all, do a bunch of things up there. And, um, and they landed right in the middle of the fall of this church. And they left a mark. They left a mark. My friend no longer identifies as a Christian. He deconstructed his faith very publicly on his own podcast. And, and I love him dearly. He's a, he's a dear friend. But so much of the, the, the rise and fall, the crash and burn of this church was centered around the, uh, this a brash, controversial, but charismatic leader. And when listening to this, I wondered, um, I, there were times where I wondered why God would allow this sort of individual to do these sorts of things and to go on as it did. Why would God allow this man to do these things and say these things that he did? And then I wonder why God would allow any of us to do any of the things that we do. But this idea of the mystery of God working in broken places, and this podcast came to mind as I was studying this passage this week for a couple reasons. One, they put out their last episode of the year. It was a full year, and they put out their last episode a couple days ago of this podcast. But, um, but also because in our passage today, we have another example of a brash controversial, charismatic leader who does not crash and fall. A brash, controversial, I mean, we're going to see a little bit about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist pulled no punches. 
He actually walked onto the scene and said the most controversial things and made people uncomfortable right from the get-go. But he doesn't crash and fall. It's not the rise and fall of John the Baptist that we're talking about today. We're talking about a faithful decrease intentionally from a man of God who knows who he is and knows who Jesus is and is happy about both of those things. And so today I want to look at this passage, John the Baptist, again, we were introduced to him earlier in the Gospel of John, but I want to take another look at John the Baptist as the Gospel of John circles back around to John the Baptist, who does not crash and fall, but rather at the height of his ministry, at the height of his ministry, in the prime of his ministry life, accepts a faithful decrease, aware of his role, aware of his own limits, and aware of God's call on his life. He does not cling to his power and authority and deride others who would take the stage. John the Baptist turns out to be like Jesus, to actually be self-emptying. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to John chapter 3, verse 22. Let's find out what we can learn from this man. Let's find out what we can learn from John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. He's one of my favorite characters. He's a little bit of a kook, Right? Right? Like he shows up, he's wearing camel hair, and he's like showing up in the place where Elijah goes up, and he's like, here I am, I'm eating locusts and wild honey. Like, and he's saying all kinds of stuff. So let's look at John chapter 3, verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there, and, um, with, and he remained there and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing near Anon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. John had not yet been thrown in prison. The, the Gospel of John recognizes these other traditions about John. He presupposes that these readers already know what goes on in the Gospel of Mark, like I said, and Luke and Matthew. He, he presupposes they already know this. And it says this, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. All right. John, so here's one, one thing about this that I think we need to understand is that John, first of all, is a very popular figure in his day. Like I said, he shows up, he's, he's out in the wilderness, he's dressed in the clothes of Elijah in the place where Elijah was caught up into heaven, right? So there's already this question about, like, are, are you Elijah? And they ask him that, are you Elijah? Come back. And there was this expectation at the end of all time that Elijah would come back and he would turn the hearts back to the hearts of fathers back to their children, the hearts of children back to their fathers, and that he would come and do this. And, and John would show up. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite um, passages about John the Baptist is in Luke chapter 3. You, know, you can turn there if you'd like. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 says this about John. This is what it would have been like to be around John. Okay? 3-7, Luke 3-7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. So he's out in the Jordan River. It's about a day's walk down from Jerusalem. And people come out from Jericho, and they come out to see John. And it says that there's crowds coming out to him. And you know what he says? He, like, John is not like the seeker-sensitive one. It's not like he's like, hey, let's, let's make space for all these people. He basically says this, look in, 3, 7, in Luke 3, 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, 
You bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit, we're going to chop it down. God's going to chop it down. Like this is what he says. They go out because they're like, who is this guy? What is he doing? He's dunking people in the Jordan River. He's cleansing them. He's offering forgiveness outside of the temple. And he shows up. He's all, bunch of snakes. Don't think for a second that you can just claim that you're the children of Abraham. It's like back, you know, I don't, you might have heard this like, um, you can't really say I'm a Christian because I was born in the church, right? Because it's just because you're born in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? You ever, that's like what he's saying. Like, you can't just say we're the children of Abraham. You can't do this. You have to bear fruit. So anyway, John is this, and John gains this following. People come out to see him. Even in this, in this case, look at the kind of people who come out to see him. They're like, well, what do we do? The crowds come out and say, what do, I do? what do we do in verse 10? He says, well, if you have two tunics, share. Tax collectors, came to, tax collectors came out and they said, what should we do? And John's like, well, don't take too many taxes from people. Roman soldiers come and they say, well, what should we do? He's all, don't pressure people. Don't extort people. Be content with your salary. So like all these people are coming out to John and he's gaining a following. John... John is a significant figure in the day. Actually, we have from, from secular sources, Josephus, he actually records some of the ministry of John the Baptist. From other sources, like he gets on the radar of the historians of the day. Like he trends on Twitter, right? Like he, he's, he's trending, he's, he's up. People know who he is. And you have to think like, here's this brash, controversial guy and people are coming out, and they're willing to kind of take his verbal abuse, right? Because they want to repent. And I think this is significant when we think about what's going on, because when you have all these people that can gather around, so these disciples follow John, and they get to, they're with him, and, they're, they're part, and there's long lines at the baptistry, right? There's long lines at the Jordan River, people coming in to be, to be cleansed of their sins. And this is where we pick it up in 322 or in, in 325, that there's a discussion between one, John and some of his disciples over a, and a Jew over purification. And in 326, they said, they said, hey, hey, John, hey, John, John, that guy that you were talking about, that Jesus guy, well, he's right over there. And our lines are small, and everybody's going over to him. What What gives? Like, we've left a lot of things to come and be around you. Like, we've followed you. We've come to you. We've, we've been part of your movement. And you're trending on Twitter. You're at the height. You know, like, people know who you are. And I think what we want to do today is we want to ask this question. What, what does John do to avoid what we see in our own society today of people who gain influence, develop a following, and at some point, it all falls apart. What do we find in John? So there's, there's really four things. By the way, you have a, you have a little um, outline in your uh, bulletin. You guys have that? Okay, I want to give you some instructions about your outline. I want you to just ignore it. All right? 
Okay, so that's what happens between Wednesday and Sunday when you're, when you're preparing messages. So there's really four things. There's four things. There's, you can look at half of it. That's fine. Okay, um, but I want you to just, I want us to consider John's response to this idea that, hey, 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 our line is small. Our line, our line used to be long to get baptized, and now it's small. And now Jesus and his disciples, their line is growing. There's more people going to them. What is John's response? All right, so four things. Here's the first one. First one is this. John the Baptist answered in 327. The first thing he says is this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The NIV translates it, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You know, ministry is a funny thing. And for those of you who've been in maybe professional ministry, professional Christianity, Thank you, everybody. I'm a professional Christian. Um, if you've been involved, whether you've been whether you volunteered in ministry or you've been you've built a ministry or you've been part of building a ministry or serving in a ministry, we I think we know that ministry can be kind of a funny thing. And I've worked at a number of churches and been around since I became a believer. Been around a number of ministries along the way, and there are sometimes in ministry it can seem like you're the hottest thing in town. This is particularly true in, in youth ministry. Andrew and I talk about this. Um, when, we, when we meet, but um, I did a number of years of youth ministry. It sounds like prison, like I did a number of years in, you know, in youth, in junior high. Uh, anyway, but I remember there, there would be days where it was like you're doing an event or you're inviting kids, and it just seems like, it seems like, well, this person wants to bring friends, and this person wants to bring friends, and this person wants to bring friends, and it's just like a, there's, a, there's so many kids. Sometimes there's so many that show up, it's just out of control. It's like Lord of the Flies, right? It's like so much is going on. I have no idea what's going on, but we're going to preach the gospel and see what happens. It's just like, whoa, you know, and kids are throwing dodgeballs at your head while you're giving a talk. It's just the best thing, right? But, but then like the next week, you're like, oh, it's going to be like that again, and then next week, it's like a handful of kids, like five kids. And sometimes you're, you, that can be discouraging. You're like, what do I do with that? And that can be the same thing with, with church, too. Like, that there can be time when it's like you feel like you're the cool church or that a lot of people want to come to your church. And then there are other times, and then you show, it's like, well, where did everybody go? And maybe, maybe I'm the only one who experiences that, but maybe some of you have experienced something like that as well. And I think one of the, and I've shared this from the stage before, but one of the best philosophies of ministry or just perspectives on ministry that you can get, and I think John the Baptist has this here, is that um, I remember being on a trip with a bunch of youth pastors, and there was one kind of sage, grizzled youth pastor, you know, he's got long hair, and he's like, you know, he's, he's been through the wars of dodgeball, and, and uh, you know, um, what's another good, you know, weird crowd breakers, you know, he just, he's seen it all. He's forgotten more about youth ministry than I've ever learned, right? And um, just asking, like, what, what's some advice? And he's, I remember him saying, you know, Craig, in youth ministry and in ministry, sometimes the tide comes in and sometimes the tide goes out. Talking about numbers, talking about people, talking about students that are in the ministry or people in the church, that sometimes the tide comes in and you're full and you got a lot of people and a lot of energy, and sometimes the tide goes out. And John has a, has a really good sense of this. He says, um, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Sometimes in ministry, there's momentum, there's energy, 
People are coming. People are experiencing life change. But there are other times where it feels like maybe you're forgotten and that the community, you're invisible to your community. And we, we don't know a path forward. That sometimes that's, that's part of us, but we also have to, we recognize that people are, there's a, one of our values is this idea of the overwhelming value of each person, that people are, are overwhelmingly value, and sometimes God gives you a lot of them, and sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to give you, we're, we're not going to bring a number of people here. And the question is, what do you do with that? And I think John says, look, John says, whatever I have, all the people that have lined up, that's only, it's not because, I mean, look at me. I'm dressed in camel hair. We didn't go out seeking to try to gather a crowd. The only reason people are here is because God has moved in hearts. And so he says, we can only have, we can only receive what God gives to us. And I think this is the first thing about John the Baptist is this that John the Baptist knows who he is and that his ministry is given to him by God. It's not because he had the, you know, um, he had great sneakers on and people could look at his sneakers. There's a big Instagram account, Preachers with Sneakers. Uh, You guys, anyway, thank you very much. Yeah, the chuckles. You're you're like, yeah, and they make fun of preachers for the shoes they wear. I'm like, hey, Kohl's, it was a buy one, get one half off. Thank you very much, okay? But, but John the Baptist is like, look, we didn't do anything to gather these people. God, for some reason, said, like, we got on the radar, and they went down, and they came to look. John the Baptist knows who he is, and that his ministry is given by God. Not because he built it, not because they came for him, they came for some other reason. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. If you look at what he says, look at 328. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So it's it's this this really interesting scene. They're like, you know, you think like, like, hey, John, hey, hey, John, there's this guy over here, you know, and he's, and, uh, you know, he's he's cutting in on our territory, right? And John, and and when they say it, they actually say, do you remember that guy of whom you bore witness? Like, they actually say that. Like, remember how you said that there was a guy who you saw the Spirit descend on and that the Spirit abided on him and remained on him and that he was going to be the Messiah? You remember that guy? He's right over there. And he's getting more crowds than we are. And John's like, like, you just said what I said back in the day that he should get more crowds. He is why I'm here. Let, he, he goes on to say, he says, I am not the Christ, but, you, but have been sent before him. And recalls back this exchange in 119. I think what's interesting is that John, when John is recalling this, it, it reminds us that John is resistant to take a position or title that would detract from Jesus. Like when we look back at 119, uh, the, these leaders from Jerusalem come down and they're like, uh, and John, the very first thing he says to them is what? I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. Like they come down and he, he guesses what their first question is. Are you the Messiah? He's like, I, I'm going to beat you to the punch. I am not the Messiah. And then they come in, they, they say, well, are you Elijah? Because, you know, the camel hair, like all, all this stuff. And he's like, I'm not Elijah. He goes, well, are you the prophet? And these are all official titles of kind of eschatological men who are to come. And John says, no, I'm not. You know what, remember what he says? He says, I am a what? 
Oh, come on, guys. We, we, we've covered this. I'm, I'm a voice. I'm a, I love you guys. You give the best, okay? I'm a voice. Don't call me Elijah, the Messiah, the prophet. I'm just a lonely voice. I'm a herald calling out that if I do my job, you will forget all about me. And you'll focus on the one that I'm heralding. I'm just the guy who goes ahead of the parade saying, hear ye, hear ye. He's on his way. He's on his way. And then I fade off into, into the sunset. And then the one who is to come, comes. John the Baptist is hesitant to take a title that will distract from Jesus. We think about that first point. The first point is that John, uh, John knows who he is and that he has a ministry given by God and he is hesitant to take a title or a position that will distract from Jesus. And one of our, one of our, uh, one of our values here um, when I first came, we, we picked up their four values, anticipating that God will move. Our second one is um, removing distractions and calling attention to God. If there's anything, if there's anything on this stage, if there's anything on our campus, if there's anything in a sermon that's going to distract from God, we want to remove it and we want to point to God. Removing distractions, calling attention to God, that's what we want to do. And I think with this, that John is like, look, if, you, if, if me being Elijah is going to distract, because later, in other places, Jesus will ask, he's, he's, he's like, yeah, John is the Elijah who was to come. Like, Jesus actually says that about John in another gospel. But when they ask John, um, are you Elijah? Like, he could have said, yeah, I've come in the spirit of Elijah, and I could explain all this to you. But he's like, no, 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 that's going to distract if I, if I go into the nuances of this whole thing, like, here's the deal. I'm the Elijah. I'm the spirit of Elijah. Like, I've come in the spirit of Elijah. He's like, look, we're just going to forget all that, and I'm not going to take that title at all. I'm a voice. I'm a voice. So he's, he's hesitant to distract from Jesus. Even though he could claim that authority, the honor of that, he says, I'm not going to take it if it's going to distract from the one who is to come from Jesus. So the first thing, the first thing is that he, he comes, he knows who he is, and he knows that his ministry comes from God. It's given to him by God. The second thing is that he's not willing to take a title that's going to distract from who Jesus is. The third thing is this, and this is the one point. Um, yeah, this is on your, your notes. Um, I think this, that other one wasn't, but um, John takes the title, a voice, but he also takes another title that recognizes his secondary status. Look at 329. He gives us an analogy. Like, they're all, hey, they're coming to, they're, they're all going to Jesus. Our line is short. They're going to Jesus. And he says, look, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one getting married to the bride is the groom. The friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He goes, you want, look, you can call me a voice crying in the wilderness. You know what else you can call me? You can call me the best man. If you want to call me anything, you can call, or better yet, just call me a friend of the groom. I'm a friend of the groom. What's my job? My job is to be, my job is to make sure, back in the day, the job of the, of the friend of the groom or the best man was to go get the bride and bring her to the groom. And what was happening? Like, that, there, Jesus has got a long line of people who want to talk to him. What is John saying? I'm pumped up about that. 
That's my job is to bring the groom, bring the bride, the people of God to the Messiah. That's my job. And when that happens, I'm going to rejoice. Okay, my line is short, but I mean, imagine this. Imagine that one of your friends, and we have some people getting married, but imagine that like they asked somebody to be a best man like, uh, or, or a maid of honor. Let's say you were invited to be the best man or the maid of honor with your friend. And, you weren't, and they were like, we want to honor you because you've been, you've been such a good friend, and I, we want you to be in our wedding. We want you to be the best man. We want you to be the, the, the maid of honor, okay? What an honor that is. Now imagine that you misunderstood your role. That as, you know, the bride, as the bride's coming down the aisle, you're like, check me out. Like, you're like, why is everybody looking at her? Like, come on, I'm the, I'm the best man. Or maybe instead of the groom, you're like, you know, you're kind of stepping in front of the groom, like looking at the camera or whatever. Like in the pictures, you're all, and like you kind of ruin their pictures for the day because you misunderstand your role. You think it's all about you that day, but it's all about them getting married together. It's not about you. You're just supposed to stand by the side and look nice. And if the marriage is ever in trouble, you go and you help them to get back together again, right? That's what the wedding party's supposed to be. But if you misunderstand your role, you think it's all about you. And John's like, look, you guys all know this. I'm the best man. I'm the best man. Those aren't, that's not my bride. I'm not going to commit adultery with the groom's bride. It's not about me. It's about the groom. And so John says, look, he, uh, he says, uh, you want to call me anything, you can call me a voice in the wilderness, or you can call me a friend of the groom. John says that he is joyful when Jesus is united with his people. What Jesus is doing over there makes me happy. So the the third thing is this. John the Baptist is joyful when people are coming to Jesus. Now we're going to, we'll get into this, but sometimes there's, um, sometimes there's rivalries in ministry. You ever notice this? This doesn't happen to anybody else. This is just me, okay? That you hear about a ministry that's doing real well or a church that's doing real well or you're like, well, something must be wrong over there. You know, all these people are coming to faith in Jesus. They might not be understanding the gospel. Like, like, like you're, you're almost a little resentful of a ministry because people are coming to Jesus. Like, it's a diagnostic. We have to perform on ourselves. Like, if we're not joyful that people are coming to Jesus... That's a me problem, right? That's not, a, that's not a Jesus problem. That's not that other church's problem. Like if I can't be joyful that people are being introduced to Jesus, then I have to take a good look at my life. Right? Same, same thing about like if, if, if Jesus is coming back, you're like, well, I don't want Jesus to come back until, uh, until I have a chance to get married or, or I, don't want, I want Jesus to come back until I have a chance to do this. You're like, well, if you're not happy when Jesus is coming back, like you got a problem. Right? Like, if there's something that you're like, I think that would be more important than Jesus coming back. Like, these are the diagnostics that we have to do on our lives. Like, if I'm not joyful that people are coming to Jesus, I've got to take a hard look at what's going on in my soul. And John the Baptist is like, no, 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 no. You guys don't understand. Don't be resentful of Jesus. I'm super happy. This is what I, this is, this is what I made for. All right, we'll get, we'll, we'll hit it again, but um, and then John the Baptist, the fourth thing that he does, he says something that is particularly profound. Look at um, 330. 
This is a short verse, great verse. I think this is a great verse that everyone should memorize, including me, and just say it every day, and that is this. He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a great verse to memorize, right? 3.30. The most fundamental posture of John the Baptist is that Jesus must increase, which means he must take a lesser role. I think as we, in our, in our world today, people who are generally in the spotlight a lot get used to being in the spotlight. And when that spotlight starts to shift over to other people, sometimes it can produce some tension. And I think in our world, we see people not... Actors, celebrities, as they age, maybe they don't age as graciously because they want to be in the spotlight. They want to look young and beautiful. And they do things to themselves because they want to stay in the spotlight. And they don't do that graciously. Rather than saying... Yeah, my time. My, I know who I am, and I know what I was, and I know what my role is, and it's now time for me to just graciously let the spotlight move over to someone else. He must increase, but I must decrease. I think, you know, I, I think we're particularly in a, in a season right now, you think about just the demographics of post-World War II and um, baby boomers, children of those who came back from the war, and um, it was a great, a, a, what, a, what a wonderful generation of building the country, building businesses. So much industry has come from what we now call baby boomers. But we're also seeing a point where baby boomers are now aging out of the workforce, aging out of the businesses that they built, aging out of the organizations that they started. And what we're seeing is there's a lot of tension about what will come next. And as we kind of look at that, we, can, we, we probably see, you probably note great examples of people who are like, I know my time is ending, and I know it's time to pass the torch, and I'm going to be intentional about passing the torch, and I'm going to do it well, and I'm going to do it graciously. And we look at examples like that, and we're like, man, that person knew who they were. They knew what was coming next. They planned. They made a great succession plan. There's some churches over here. I think Calvary Church Santa Ana has done a great job. Um, uh, Pastor Dave and Eric, as they as they've, they've passed the baton, and they've done that, they did it intentionally. I, I had a chance to be a little bit on the inside of some of that and to have some conversations and just to say, what a wonderful example of just knowing when to hand the torch off. But at the same time, we probably have seen in business or even in churches where it's like just gripping onto power for all that it's worth. And just holding on, holding on, holding on until everything falls apart. And there can be tension. There can be tension in transition. And I think what we find with John is John has dealt with his own stuff. He's dealt with his own, he knew, he had this rise to popularity and then when Jesus shows up, he's like, okay, I've done my part. I've done my part. And then he says, I'm going to faithfully decrease. Now, John doesn't stay silent. Like, he says some things that gets him killed. Um, and John gets martyred because he calls out uh, one of the kings of Israel. Um, but this question, like, how do I deal with my own stuff, my desire for success, 
my desire to be respected. And here's the thing, as I'm, preaching, as I'm preaching on John the Baptist and how awesome he is and how humble he is and how easy it is, how he like, has this plan for succession, I, like, as I'm, as I'm uh, preaching this, I don't want you to think like, I mean, there's p- plenty of self-report to do here, everybody. Like, there's, there's plenty of, like, my own pride, my own, like, hey, I'm doing awesome. Like, I teach the Bible really well. Like, I know the Bible. There's plenty of that going on in here. Like, if you guys think, like, Pastor Craig, he's such a humble guy, you're like, yeah. Like, you could probably, maybe some of you are already thinking that at, at the same time. And that's okay, all right? But, but the idea here is that, look, in ministry, especially in ministry, there is this sense of, like, working and struggling and trying to do this and 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 pastors are funny people like i one of the sometimes pastors can only understand what pastors go through and that on the on kind of the good side but also on the bad side like you show up at a at a a pastor's conference and like there's all these pastors they show up and all of us pastors we all kind of go we go into these these conferences and we're all like yeah we might not be big but we do this well, we might not do that, but we're big. Like, we got a lot of people. I remember being at this, this, was, this is a great, this is one of my favorite, okay, and I won't name the churches, but they're big churches in the area, okay. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why I don't name the churches, because um, I have a, I have a, uh, I have a pact that I've made with myself on something. But anyway, I'll tell you in a second. But I was at the small group's pastor's meeting, and um, there were two really big churches in the area at this meeting. Where we were, I was at Voyagers at the time, and we were, you know, we had life groups, and it was, you know, and um, one of the churches was like, um, you know, we, we've got 80% involvement in our congregation in life groups. And they were, they were like, check it out. I mean, and that's a, that is an, I'm honestly, I was like, that's an awesome number. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Because that's awesome. Like, that's great. Because in, in life groups is where people get cared for, people learn, there's growth around. It's awesome. And then this other large church is like, well, why aren't you aiming for 100? Why aren't you aiming for 100%? And I was like, and I was like oh, this is like, this is like mega church on mega church crime going on right here. This is awesome, right? Like, I'm like, okay, you guys go for it. This is, I thought they were going to go across the table. But like, it's weird when you get together with pastors. Like, there's a weird sort of pride that comes out at times. And again, if you haven't seen it before, I'll invite you to the next one and you can see it. It's really kind of bizarre and weird and like I can't take my eyes off it, okay? It's like really interesting, okay? Um, but at the same time, like, I've got to deal with my own stuff. Like, I've got my own issues. I've got my own sense of, like, yeah, people need to listen to me. Like, that person, they need to listen to me. Like, I have my own issues. What do we do when other churches in the area grow or prosper? Sometimes what we find is that we'll make excuses for our own ministry and we'll kind of demean their ministry. And I'm not, I'm, that's not you, that's just me, right? Okay, you guys are all fine. You never do anything like that. I think what's really, um, a few years ago I heard about um, this thing called the Modesto Manifesto. Has anybody ever heard of the Modesto Manifesto? You might be like, you're like, what are you, what are you, you just mentioned Modesto, Pastor Craig. Um, so Billy Graham, early in his ministry, as they were going around and with this key group of people, um, they noticed a number of things that there were a lot of evangelistic uh, crusades that would kind of work their way through, but all the, all the, uh, the evangelists were, were falling to these various trials and temptations, like whether it was sexual impurity or, um, or money 
or, um, uh, but one of the things that came up when they got together, they said, one of the things that, that kind of plagues evangelistic organizations, these parachurch evangelistic organizations, is that if a church won't cooperate with them, they'll kind of deride them or demean them. And sometimes it could be really scathing. Like, you don't care about the gospel because you won't, you know, like, like it could be really, it could be really demeaning. And on, in, the, in the Modesto Manifesto, they made, um, they, they talked about um, uh, what they would do with money, sexual immorality, and overcounting at rallies. Those were, those were three of the big things. But the other thing was, um, was how their ministry talked about and dealt with local churches. And there, were some, there was a tendency among some evangelists to criticize local churches that wouldn't work with them, and sometimes it would be really biting. But Billy Graham and his team resolved to cooperate with, with churches that wanted to cooperate with them and to do this, to never speak ill of another church or ministry. To never speak ill of another church or ministry. And that, that had a huge impact on me. Because there have been a lot of times in my life where I was just resentful of other ministries, bigger ministries. And I, you know, if, if somebody asked me, I'd be happy to say whatever was on my mind. And I made, I made a, a, and you, you all can hold me accountable to this. And I, I, there are days where I'm, I'm good at it, but there are other days where I process with my wife and she hears everything. Um, where my resentment, my anger can come out about these things. But I, I want to make, make a pact from the, from the stage. I never want to say anything ill or anything, anything bad about any other church or ministry. It's not my place. It's not my place. I know that there are some ministries that kind of see themselves as like a watchdog. They're going to they're gonna be a watchdog and make sure that the gospel stays pure and et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm not a watchdog. And I actually take to heart the words of Galatians Galatians 5.14 says this, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I'm not a watchdog, and our church is not going to be a watchdog. And if I was a watchdog, I feel like we'd have a church full of watchdogs, and then we'd just bite and devour each other. I want every church in the city of Orange full. Every church in the city of Orange full. I want every pastor in the city of Orange to be, uh, I, I want them to be encouraged. I want them to know that we have their back. I want them to know that if they go through a hard time, that they are not, we're not going to, we're not going to be like, yeah, we can get some of their people. That's not what we're trying to do. Like, look, if every church in the city of Orange was full on a Sunday, there would still be thousands and thousands of people who would need to hear about Jesus. We want every church full in the city of Orange. Why just the city of Orange? Because that's what we're responsible for. We can only receive what God has given to us. What has God given to us? He's given us the city of Orange. He said, look, we're going to give you like three acres in the middle of this city, and, we wa- and, and I want you to go out. I want you to make sure that every man, woman, and child knows that Jesus loves them and sees them, and that Je- God's saving power is available in Jesus. You got that? Right? That's what has been given to us. We can only receive what has been given to us. And I think sometimes we, we want to look at greener pastures, easier places, more like things that could make us look better in different places, lest we forget what God has given to us. And so as we think about, as we think about John the Baptist, like John the Baptist knew exactly who he was. He knew what his role was. He knew what God had given to him. And when God gives him and then he reveals that Jesus is the guy, he's like, Jesus is the guy. And I can, still, I can still have my own ministry, but it, all eyes, all eyes can now go to Jesus. I think 
when we think about other people's success? Two things. How do we respond to other people's successes, and how do we respond to our own successes? Okay? First thing, other people's successes. One, and, and I don't know, I don't know what, what it is, what, what you need to, when you've been listening to this sermon, like what's landing on your heart, because I, I think that God does different things as we sit in here and we pray that God would do his work, but the first thing is this, when someone else, when some other ministry succeeds, or even some other, minis- some other thing, um, rejoice that the gospel is being spread. As people come to Jesus, find a way to find joy. Even if you're like, I don't know what the heck's going on over there. Find a way to find joy. If I'm not joyful about people coming to Jesus, take stock. You've got to take some stock. Okay? All right, so that's, that's, I think that's the first thing. When, other church, when we see other ministries succeed, but what about our own successes? When we experience success, I've shared this before, but I'm colorblind. You guys didn't know this. I told the preschoolers this. We did a chapel in here the other day, and some guy was wearing purple. I'm like, what color is this, everybody? And they're like, it's purple. And I'm like, I can't tell the difference between blue and purple, okay, because I'm colorblind. It's not my fault. I don't have a cone in my eye. That's what I've been told. I can't see the difference between blue and purple. So when I was a kid, I would color the sky purple because, hey, another blue crayon, right? And it's like it was purple. And then I I also can't tell the difference between brown and green, and so I would color the grass brown and the sky purple, and I'd give it to my mom. I'm like, look what I did, mom. She'd like put it on the fridge. Okay. You know, like, it's <laughs> beautiful, son. Good job. Um, but um, but that, means that, that, that means this. Whenever I get dressed in the morning, actually, whenever I go shopping, I always need to find things that I always know go together. Okay? Kelly helps me with this. Okay? Um, and if ever, like, if ever I show up and you're like, oh, Pastor Craig, you're looking good. You're looking good today. I really like the outfit. I don't wear, I wear clothes. I don't wear outfits, but that's okay. Um, Anyway, but if, if ever you're like, hey, you look really good, I can say, you know, who, you, know who, you know who could be thanked for that? My wife, Kelly. But if, you ever, if ever I'm up here and you're like, what is he wearing? Like, that doesn't go with that. Duh. You know who can be blamed for that? Me. That's right. So you get, you get the idea. Anything good goes well? Anything goes well? Kelly. Anything goes bad? It's me, right? That's the way it is with God. When we experience success, who gets credit when we experience success? It's not us. It's God. We can only receive what God has given. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Right? Whenever, like, did you build your business? Look, God blessed you with that business. Have you done well over your life? God has blessed you. Like, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. God has blessed. But if something goes wrong, do we say, oh, God God blew this? No, we don't say that. We say, yeah, it's on me right? This is, this is the posture that we have. And this is when we think about our own successes, God has, God has blessed us. When you think about our failures, we think about, I must have overlooked something. This is on me. And so when we think about this idea, the response to other people's success, find joy in that. When you have your own success, we only receive what God has given to us. I think as we finish up, just to ask this question, like where, John the Baptist is a great example of self-emptying love. He points at Jesus. All the pictures of John in art, he's always pointing. He's doing this or he's doing this. Okay? I, seriously. Yeah, it's good. But how do, you, how do you feel like you need to be more like John the Baptist? Do you need to recognize that it is God who is doing the good in your life and not necessarily you or some other person? 
Do you need to find a way not to distract from Jesus, to recognize your own identity and call? And, and the, the limits of that. Maybe you need to find joy at the success of others. Maybe that's been hard in this season. I get it. I get it. And maybe you need to recalibrate this posture of he must increase, but I must decrease. I don't know what God's doing in your heart, in your life this morning, but John the Baptist is a wonderful opportunity for us to ask the question and just to, to refine the joy of pointing to Jesus and saying we want people to come to Jesus. Not about us, but about Jesus. Let's pray.